Welcome back to Research in the Streets, a podcast intended to provide a forum to discuss how research and data can be used by everyday people in everyday life and the official podcast of the Black Researchers Collective, per usual. I am your co-host, Glennis Green, co-founder and executive director of the Black Researchers Collective. And I'm Sherry Runner, your co-host, co-founder and board president of the Black Researchers Collective. Today we got a guest speaker, y'all. Sherry, who is our guest speaker? The city of Chicago's chief equity officer, Candace Moore. Yeah, yes, indeed. And we'll be chatting with Candace in a bit about how she has and is leveraging research and data in her work since she has been appointed as chief equity officer and how those efforts have directly and or indirectly impacted Chicago ref- residents. But First, but first, first, we want to start off by talking a bit about dis- disinformation and cancel culture, which feels perfectly fitting for today. We are in the studio today recording on Election Day. So this conversation feels super, super relevant <clears throat> because there is so much data being used to support dis- disinformation campaigns this election season. It is mind blowing. Like, These data actually contribute to the shaping of narratives, um, many of which have negative implications for Black communities uh, that can influence behaviors. For example, you may have seen the anti-Prixker ads floating around the South and West Side of Chicago. Leaflets, you've probably seen them on the news somewhere. They read, Pritzker lying, Black kids are dying. Regardless of how you feel about the governor, It's important to know that these ads are funded by the people who play by the rules political action committee, which is a PAC. Um, The PAC is run by a GOP political operative, Dan Proft, I think it's his name, and it's financed by a mega donor whose track record is nearly exclusively conservative leaning. So in a nutshell, these people have zero interests in black communities or issues concerning black people. They just want to ensure, ensure that black people don't vote for anyone who doesn't support their agenda. So we have to be super mindful about how frequently data is used in this way to co-opt and, and colonize. And essentially cancel vote. Exactly. So it's important to me to recognize how narratives are developed and how those narratives define communities. And as my shiro, Nicole Hannah-Jones says, narrative is policy. Narratives have long-lasting effects on opinions and belief and are passed from generation to generation and incorporated into cultures. They become the ethos and as such form the aspirations and beliefs about people and what they can do and achieve. Before we dig in, let's talk a little bit about how data and research can be used to cancel people. Canceling is a term that has been co-opted by some to suggest restrictions on free speech or First Amendment rights. When its inception, cancel culture was used when free speech was co-opted by hate speech used to manipulate opinions. Let's be clear. The First Amendment allows us to say what we want, but it also allows for freedom of religion, assembly, Mm -hmm. petitioning government, and press for everyone. And that's the point. Hateful rhetoric that is used to brand people and disenfranchise them in the name of being able to say anything about anyone, it is n- whether it's true or not, while it can be freely spoken, does not come with no consequences. Free speech, as a result, can be and can and is used as a weapon, propaganda. Free speech doesn't belong to just one group, and when people clap back, that isn't canceling. It's just more free speech, right? Just because you let something fly out of your mouth doesn't mean it's true or won't be responded to and that it won't have consequences that you didn't intend right Mm -hmm. along with the ones that you did. In particular, using characterizations to form questions, to undertake studies, to form conclusions, (laughs) make data interpretations dangerous. The facts and opinions backed up by data spoken by the right person can now become viral faster than ever Mm -hmm. before. Definitely. And the right to essay anything becomes truth. And we all know that if doubt is cast on a person or group, even if it's disproved, the onus is on the person or group to never let anything happen that might be construed as proof again. And that's just not realistic. Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, I... 
given also this this election day, you know, I'm I'm very curious about how some of these things can take shape in government. And I think that this is a a perfect segue and a great opportunity <laughs> point to to bring in our guest speaker to contribute to the conversation because we have ceo candace Moore in the building <laughs> um for, for those of you who does who, who don't know who candace Moore is and i told candace i was like you know i prepared a little bio and i hope i i do it justice <laughs> if i don't um, just say that ain't working. That's okay, and you you can talk about who you are yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but welcome. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Candace has made history as the city's first chief equity officer for the city of Chicago. She leads the Office of Equity and Racial Justice (OERJ), which seeks to advance institutional change that results in an equitable transformation of how we can do business across the city. Um, prior to her mayoral empo- appointment in 2019, Candace served as the senior staff attorney for the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, where she accomplished a number of unprecedented achievements in partnership with communities, such as the passage of one of the most transformational pieces of legislation concerning school discipline in the state of Illinois back in 2014, SB100, and earned an injunction in the uh, Circuit Court of Cook County that stopped the closure of NTA, National Teachers Academy, in 2018, which as a result can now continue to remain a top-ranked elementary school serving predominantly black students in the South Loop. Um, so put some respect on her name as we welcome the incredible Candace Moore. Woo! Thank you, thank you. I appreciate you. You did, you did pretty good. I was like, man, I've been up to some things. You yeah. sure have. <laughs> welcome. We appreciate you. We love you. Thank you for taking the time to come to the studio and chat with us. You're actually our officially our first live guest we have a ton of guest speakers but most of them are not live so thank you for for joining us in this amazing um studio today so let's jump back into the conversation we were just talking about Mm -hmm. i know we have a what are your thoughts on this and sherry specifically you had some questions for candace with regard to this yeah, I think it's important as we start to talk about how it's not just people that get canceled. We've had a lot of talk lately about Kanye and Kyrie and, you know, numerous uh, celebrities, for lack of a better word, that um, feel like they get canceled when they say things that may or may not be true, but are that are outrageous. Um, and all in for the purpose of shifting political dialogue. And so, I, you know, it really isn't people that are getting canceled with all of that. It's communities. It's broad swaths of things that are getting canceled. It's, you know, the people that say those things know what they're saying when they say them to form opinion. So what happens? How How is that dialogue? Because it becomes incorporated into policy as it's made, and, and people have to, as politicians, respond to their communities who listen to a lot of this all the time because we're flooded with information. Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, especially being in government, the 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 thing that concerns me the most is to what extent can we have like real discourse about our ideas and what we want for in our case the city that we all live in. Um and you know, hate speech is 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 one thing and speech that is designed to um, hurt people that are designed to sow misinformation is one thing, but but then there is advocacy and positions and the ways in which we are not allowed to have a real discourse about uh, ideas, mm-hmm. about strategies, mm-hmm. yeah. about what we want and what our shared vision of our city is. But we can have different ways to get there because we're different people with different perspectives. And so what I think can be concerning to me is when the rules that govern our conversation don't allow us to question ideas or strategies or debate with one another Mm -hmm. or 
press or push against um, an idea with the goal of trying to come up with the strategy that it would best allow us to get to an outcome that we believe. And so it, it it's tough because I don't know that there's any one set of rules that you always do it this way and then you're right and then you always do it that way. I think there are lots of oops and ouch moments along the way. And I think sometimes when you are in, especially when you're in political office, there is such a fear that surrounds being wrong right. uh, because of the risk of being canceled or positioned a certain way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think at the end of the day, it, it, it hurts us as a community um, because we're losing really critical conversations that we need to have to try to move one another. Yeah. What are some of the ways that you have seen in, in your current role disinf- uh, data being used to fuel disinformation um, you know, against government in, in general or, you know, what are some of the ways in which you feel like your office has personally been impacted by the cancel culture train as it re- relates to data being used to inform, to fuel disinformation against your work that you've been doing? Yeah, I, I think one of the things I realized when I first started this work is that everybody kind of was operating with a different definition of equity. Yeah. And so <laughs> if you weren't riding with that definition, <laughs> then you were wrong and yeah. you were equitable. And so it's like, whoa, 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 we got to be clear about what we're talking about. Equity is not reduced to contracts is not reduced just to workforce it's not reduced to you know there there were ways in which folks were saying equity is just another way it's it's for black people only or it's for latinx folks or it's a whitewashing of the the racial justice or yeah. something like that and so what happens with that is then um, well, really quickly for the people, because we talk about um, racial equity as both a process and an outcome. And I know you have a similar definition. So mm-hmm. talk to people about what the city's definition of racial equity is. Yeah. And, and I'll share that, um, you know, we actually went through a community process together to come up with that definition. We threw a lot of popular definitions of equity out there. And we asked, you know, Chicagoans to help us workshop this. And where we landed is that equity is both a process and uh, an out and outcomes that uh, are driving so that uh, it people it's fair it's a fair and just uh, process and outcomes that allow for all people to thrive is the, is the mm-hmm. gist of it and the idea is that we can't just reduce equity to outcomes right mm-hmm. so because how we get there is as a as a, is as important as where we where we go and so um, in our work, when you're talking about outcomes and you're looking at data, you know, we need to be able to be clear about what is the current state of the problem, mm-hmm. right? Um, and sometimes in equity work, uh, I-, I see folks, uh, the term that I think folks use sometimes is like oppression Olympics. Like, mm-hmm. I-, I got it worse. So, <laughs> you know, my issue needs to be first or mm-hmm. I got it worse over here and my issue needs to be first. And the question is, wait, where are we trying to go? What's the overall desired result? And then let's talk about what's going on for different uh, segments of the population, yeah. whether that's by race, whether that's by gen- d- gender or whether that's by the intersection of both. And then ask ourselves, what do communities need to get to that desired result? Mm-hmm. But And there's also sort of a notion in the world of equity um, from the exterior that if something happens to improve the lives of one group, it's going to take away from the lives of others. Mm-hmm. And so that that whole idea that there is a whole that doesn't mean that it can't expand. It means that it's going to destroy somebody. And that is something that creates divisiveness and pits people against each other. And regardless of what statistics or data says, that it, there is no absolute on equity. Right. The, the equity mm-hmm. is a zero-sum game. And, you know, I actually think uh, what we just experienced with the pandemic is one of the most powerful um, examples that I think pushes against that, right? When we're talking about health right. of for all Chicagoans, yeah. there is no 
closed universe on who needs to get healthy. There isn't just, there's so much health and we can only give it to a few folks, yeah. right? We know that actually when we create more opportunities and more access, we're actually creating a bigger sense of the collective health that we all need and deserve, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it, it's a way to think about, you know, why, what is the, what is at stake for me helping someone or uh, dedicating these resources? to a population or to a group that is not mine because we exist in a sense of mutuality. We are yeah. in a community with one another. And if they are not well, then it actually, we can't all be well. Right. Uh, you know, COVID taught us that if a, literally if a neighborhood in the city was experiencing high rates of infection, then the whole city was at risk, yeah, right? right. Yeah. And so, I, I, you know, I, I certainly didn't know COVID was coming when I signed up for this job, but yeah. it, it really did actually prove to be one of the most powerful examples that I think I can draw people's attention to to try to explain um, both what equity is and what is at stake if we fail to do the work around it. So you had a lot of people who you mentioned um, had various thoughts about how to approach this this mm -hmm. process. How did you resolve and reconcile those things? I mean, I don't know that I have, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I also am not su superwoman over here. <laughs> but um, what I try to do every day is to give us a roadmap to have uh, I often say successful conversations around race. Mm -hmm. um, we need to get into a place in which we can talk about race and talk about what we're trying to build, mm -hmm. um, uh, not just what we're trying to break. Um, and this is work that I've really clung to. And, and so what does it mean to bring more people into the conversation? What does it mean to get different perspectives in the conversation? How do I offer language that... It adds capacity, invites folks in, because what I find is that when I do that, I can tap into the perspectives and often the genius of many people to solve things that, you know, I don't myself have the ability to solve. You know, it's interesting being a chief equity officer mm -hmm. because people think you know all the answers. <laughs> they think they can come over to you, yeah. come over to your office, and you can shake a little equity on it, and they can be on their way. And that's just really not uh, true. It doesn't work. <laughs> it, doesn't, it literally doesn't work. Um, and I always say, you know, I, I don't know your job, right? You are the transportation Expert, yeah. operator the water specialist the like i don't know your job i ain't trying to take over your job I those need... are just random titles that she's throwing out in the yes, studio yes, this yes. is not I'm targeted not... at anyone in particular yes, yes. <laughs> always a disclaimer yeah. uh, <laughs> um but so my i i i don't know the ins and outs of what you do but you do and if I can get you to understand and connect to this vision of equity, then you can bring all of that specialized knowledge that you have dedicated your life to, mm -hmm. to the work, to solve challenges that that many of us are grappling with, but but we can't get to because you're not at the table with us. Yeah. You can help us solve a, you know, a practical challenge that is impacting the overall health and well-being of a community. If you are at the table, so the value of getting you there, the value of offering a, a path, a language, uh, a capacity for you to participate in this art, in this equity conversation, is of critical importance yeah. if we're really serious about the goal of driving towards the impacts and outcomes that we want to see. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting too because it can be tiring. Mm. Um, I mean, we have so Sounds it, exhausting. It is exhausting. <laughs> you know, we've been living it for four hundred years. Uh, no, I know, right? <laughs> it's exhausting waking up, going outside every day. I, I get it, but the but the thing about it, being equity officer in Chicago, that's notoriously uh, divided, um, that has a history of um, segregated neighborhoods where resources have been. Um, misallocated um, for centuries, yeah. um, ending up in what we see today. Um, not that it happened in this administration or the administration. It's happened for many ever, administrations. Forever. 
And so there is, you know, getting people to the table to agree to talk about that, especially when there have been so many people who have benefited from that state of affairs uh, is difficult, I'm sure. They don't they don't want to see any data or, you know, they don't want to see, you know, they, they already know. My people made it. What? what? What's wrong with you? Why can't you pull it together? Why can't you get it together? Um, so that discussion about um, using data, um, using um, research to ask the right questions to formulate, is that kind of where you're going? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, the way I think about data um, is that data can help us see what we, it's going to sound weird, but what we don't see on the day-to-day, right? It doesn't sound weird to us. <laughs> <laughs> we nerd, about, nerd out about these things all the time. Right? So, <laughs> so we intimately know and have experienced the challenge of it inequity the challenge of inequality yeah but sometimes the that that we we can be sort of clouded in that experience such that when we're talking about an individual situation we're all coming with whatever experiences or visions or, or yeah. of of the work and and we have the the challenge and the opportunity to come together and say, okay, so what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And so I think data offers us a, a a grounding in a lot of ways to better understand, okay, what is the problem we are in fact trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Because yes. It has been inequitable for 400 years, but guess what? We're not going to solve that at this table. Yeah, no. But we do have the opportunity to look at a very specific thing and ask ourselves and scope a problem that we can and we have some opportunity to, to make some movement on. And, and, and so I rely on data. And, and the way I think about data, I'm sure you all probably do as well, is that it's not just numbers, right? Mm-hmm. It, um, uh, me and a, a friend from an organization called Chicago United for Equity often talk about as numbers and narratives, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 data is, is also the, the testimonies and the stories and the, and the um, narrative that people share with us. Mm-hmm. And it all can set us up to understand, okay, what is the status quo? What is the um, uh, sort of terrain that we're operating in? And how can we then scope a a, a problem that we want to work together to, to solve on? Um, and I, that's really critical for me. I mean, it's one of the reasons why um, when I why I said yes to this job and why um, and how I started it because starting off as the first chief equity officer, like it was kind of crazy to me that the first questions people would ask me were, so how are you going to solve it? How are you going to solve inequity? You know, what's that going to look like? What does success look like? And I'm like, yeah. yo, <laughs> <laughs> calm down. But I actually had to ask myself that question first yeah. so I could get serious about what what was I going to do in yeah. the time that I was here. And so the first thing I said is, Candace, your job is not to solve inequity. Like, yeah. you know, allow yourself that grace. Mm-hmm. Say it very clearly. Do not apologize yeah. for it. Stand on that truth. You are not solving anything. Yeah. You are about to start something. You are trying to set up something. You are trying to build the foundations. And what must be true in that work? What is really important in that work? Yeah. What is what are the kinds of capacities that we need to build? And 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 so that has been the focus. And so to me, data has been really, really important to setting up those foundations because they allow us to better we need to get in the practice of understanding the problems that we are trying to solve and then leveraging our work together to say, okay. Given that, what opportunities do we have to advance yeah. the work moving forward? I love that you said that because that's we think of our work in a very similar way. We always say people are super excited about the Black Researchers Collective. And we're like, this is great, but we're no silver bullet. We're not saying research is going to like <laughs> accomplish this particular set of things. But, you know, these research tools, but we know it can be used as one strategy in being able to help us build capacity for strengthening and, and building self-sustaining, thriving Black communities. One of many strategies of like getting free. This is just the approach that we have chosen to take to it. So I so appreciate that because one of the other things that I often say on this podcast as well is people 
only will do people will only do what they know how to do with the tools that they have available to them and that's important for us to recognize as well so speaking of that based on everything that you just said i kind of want to unpack that a little bit and talk in with some a, a fair level of detail about how you've been using data to really advance and start some of those things that you've been kind of seeding plant your seeds that you've been planting to grow when <laughs> you're beyond your 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 um your tenure in this role um what is that what does that look like um and specifically I want to go back to something that you talked about earlier in the conversation about um the data looking at the data that you saw about one community and how the the infections or of one community can could have potentially put the entire city at risk you know like what did your what did you do about that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so let me give you a couple examples and one will uh, actually get to that point um and um, so I'm going to start back to the, that question. Um, I remember folks asking me, like, what does success look like in this? What, yeah. you know, well, what, what is success going to look like in this equity work? And so that was a question I sat with, um, uh, right at the beginning. It's like, okay, so how do you, how do you measure equity? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I studied other cities and how they were doing it. And what I saw is, um, different kinds of data sets. Yeah. So there was a set of data that was really trying to answer the question of are are we equitable? Like who are we as a as an enterprise? Mm-hmm. And what do we look like? This is our workforce data. So so uh, data about who works where, what the breakdown of employees are by race, by gender, um, uh, you know, title, salaries, all sorts of things. So that there's that kind of data that I think people look at when they're talking about equity. Uh, then there's also the kind of data that's like that's looking at okay, so where does our money go? Um, you know, how, who who's getting the contracts? Mm-hmm. Who's getting the business of government? Um, and so there were different efforts that were using data to try to tell and explain that story. Um, then there's another set of data where um, uh, government is saying. We're going to try to address a problem, and this is how you can tell whether we are doing the work that we said we were going to do. Mm -hmm. So we're going to set a goal. We're going to outline some strategies. We're going to have some indicators, Mm -hmm. and you can track, and this is how we'll track about whether we're accomplish that, mm-hmm. accomplishing that. So that's a set of data around equity that I think um, governments were doing. And the other was, are we making the impact in the world that we would want? Um, are we looking at big outcomes like education, health, um, public safety? And is our work impacting those things? And so when... The the interesting thing was every city that I saw was doing a subset of that, um, I, you know, and that was they were all called their equity dashboards. Mm-hmm. But um, there were these different ways in which people were kind of answering the question. And, and, and what I realized is that actually equity is, is all of it. Right. Yeah. Right. It is ev- all every aspect of that is 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 a question that is important to the conversation of equity. Um, it is something we need to understand, we need to track, and we need to know. And so our approach has been to start to build out a set of data dashboards, really in all directions. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the trick I'm I'm always say this is that my again I'm not going to do all the work, so there are some things that I think my office was uniquely um, situated um, and had a, a clear opportunity to to build, and then there were some things that I saw that other teams were well situated, and so the question is then how do I activate support um, the creation of that. So one example is uh, right out of the gate around workforce, um, uh, we saw an opportunity, our office, to set up a workforce diversity dashboard. Mm -hmm. 
part of it came from um, my first city council meeting. I was shocked at how we were trying to have the conversation about what the state of our workforce was and how the data just seemed all over the place. Uh, <laughs> this person had a report over here and that person had a report <laughs> over here and they all printed that out from okay. something. But it was like they all said different things. And I was like, isn't there a universal source of truth? Like it is our, <laughs> it, it's our workforce. Do right. we not know who works here at a given time? Yeah. And the reality is we do, but it wasn't organized. Yeah. It wasn't, and, and, and it wasn't available in a way that everyone could access. So, yeah. so long story short, we worked to create a workforce data dashboard that is updated in as real time as possible mm -hmm. um, uh, and is uh, something that we can all use. You can use it inside government. You can use it externally outside of government. And we now use it as part of our budget process. We just print it out, mm -hmm. and it's the universal source of truth and if there's some additional context you need to share around that, that's fine. Um, but we all are operating at least off of the same set of data so we can have mm -hmm. a much more uh, concerted conversation. And I think that was a really big achievement in our work. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. That was a big it, it deal. It absolutely is. And, and it's interesting to know, too, as you talk about these things, these issues like education or health or even jobs, what they impact is not necessarily... Uh, it's not so important as to what happens next month or next year. It's how you're setting these things on a trajectory that have long-term impact on communities and on people who will then benefit from the policies that you're instituting right now. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very different look at saying what's the success, what's the outcome of the work that you're doing. Because if we become equitable then all these other problems start to diminish as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of critical to the discussion and that people don't want to talk about. Because to your point, the reason that there's so many different data so sets is because it, it suits certain groups' missions or means. So they want to come and say, yeah, I got this data here that says this, and I got this data here that says this. But that doesn't say what how that impacts the whole. It mm -hmm. just says how it impacts the, the one cause that they're trying to... to, to and if uh, equity is supposed to be a process as well, right? what is the process by which we regularly have access to the data that we need to support us in regular conversations around the change that we want to see? Right. And I think that, you know, that's how we thought about it is, what is the kind of information that we all deserve so that we can have a fair conversation about what we want to build and what we want to change? Well, given given what, what the two of you just said, let's take it down even a layer level, right? What does the examples that you just use with the data dashboard what does that mean for the city? For somebody who's tuning in saying, okay, I hear these workforce dashboards. This sounds like it's benefiting the city, mm -hmm. the city's interests. How does that impact me? What do you say to that? Yeah, so um, right now you could go on um, chicago.gov forward slash equity <laughs> and look at the equity dashboard and you could look at any department. And so let's say you are getting services from a department and you're like, man, I, I, you know, I, is there anyone who even like understands my community, <laughs> right? Like, are there any, yeah. is there anyone who even lives that works in this department and lives near where I live? Like what kind of experience do these folks have? Cause I'm having a problem. You can go on there and you can see where people you know, you can't like find the individual or anything like that, but you could see a geographic spread of who folks are in any given department. Say you're applying for a job and you're mm -hmm. trying to see, um, you know, is this a uh, department that has, you know, 
good gender balance or et cetera? Am I going to be like the only female that works there? You could go and you could see um, uh, what the breakdown is. You can also see um, over time so that, you know, maybe you were listening at a city council meeting and you had heard how a department's been really working on their diversity numbers and you're like, I don't know. Uh, You could go on the dashboard and see if that Mm -hmm. over time, um, if those numbers have changed. Um, and, 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 And all of that, you know, this is just around workforce. So you may be thinking about the city as your future employer. You might be thinking about the city as the entity that provides services to you. But, you know, you... Ultimately, having a question about who does this work um, is something that I think we can all relate to. And I think it's information that we deserve to know, especially when we're talking about the public sector. What are some of the ways that's, one, super duper helpful, because um, I know a lot of folks are not familiar with that dashboard and that it even exists. And so I think that that is fantastic. And I'm very excited about the dashboard. I'm very excited as, as, about the dashboard. Um, I'm also curious um, to what extent you've been engaging, you and your office have been engaging community um, in a process that concerns data and policy relevant issues that they care about. Yes. So a great example comes from COVID um, uh, and our work with the Racial Equity Rapid Response Team. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not so great at naming things all the time. um, (laughs) It worked. (laughs) It worked and it was a very dynamic group, uh, but we had a kind of a funky name there. Um, But how we got started, it was actually data. Um, so, uh, you know, rewind early in the pandemic, um, the city was firing off all sorts of strategies to try to like tamp down the spread of this virus. Remember, stay at home, wash Mm -hmm. your hands, uh, stay, you know, so many feet apart from one another, all of these things. Um, and we were starting to get data about, you know, the number of infection rates. We're starting to build that set up. But one of the things that really jumped out to us very early on was where the death rates were starting to emerge. Mm-hmm. And remember, the first death in Chicago uh, was a uh, happened in Auburn, Gresham, uh, and was a black person. Um, and, uh, you know, shortly after, as the death rate started to add up, we saw a clear pattern of uh, the death rates really being concentrated in black communities. And it was it was kind of our, oh, my moment. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if I can cuss or should cuss on here. You can. <laughs> <laughs> we do it all the time. Um, Liberate yourself. <laughs> And uh, in that moment, it was the realization for as much as our hearts and minds were as equitable as we wanted them to be, the results were not coming out that way. There were clear racial disparities. So the question for us was, what are we going to do different? Mm -hmm. And to make a long story short, we um, set up a a table of community leaders um, from the areas most that the data told us were most impacted by the problem. Um, And we had sat and we brought them to the table to say, not say like, okay, here are five ideas we have. Can you please pick one? Um, And, and, uh, you know, and then we'll apply that to try to deal with this racial disparity. We said, you all are experiencing this. We don't know what to do, but we know that we need to figure it out together. Mm -hmm. And we want you to look at the same data that we are looking at and help us figure this out. And um, I I remember it very vividly. So there were lots of surprises. On one end, I think the community was surprised. They're like, what do you mean? You ain't got an answer. Like, you know, this, this, there are so many issues happening. You don't have an answer. You want us to just come to the table. For this brand new virus that nobody has an answer for. Right, right. But there was this kind of disbelief that we would actually bring them to the table at this stage. Yeah. Right? Which is, which is something that was really surprising. They were like, they were like, we're used to coming to tables where you've already defined a set of right. solutions and you, like, what is this? Yeah. Um, 
Second, we all looked at the data and got into a routine of looking at the data together regularly. And what that began to to do is to begin to converge us around a a shared set of understanding about what was going on because they were seeing it from their perspective and community. Their cultural experience, they knew. We're seeing it from our perspective and government. And so together with us looking at the data, we began to understand it together from that shared perspective. So there were things that the data said that they were like, of course it says that because this is the situation in the community community and if it says it's happening in that area there's five nursing homes over there mm-hmm. so like it makes perfect sense to us yeah and so what was happening through this table is because we were uh creating a rhythm and a routine and sharing data regularly we began to align on with a clear understanding of what the problem was that allowed us to be a lot more creative and a lot more specific and intentional about what some solutions were and so there were some cases that we began to pursue solutions that it was very clear none of us would have come up with alone mm-hmm. right. right uh anywhere from uh uh, uh, standing up food pantries. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the community said, you know, you think people aren't listening to you just because they don't trust government. They are not listening to you because they are more worried about where their next meal is coming from. And so you talking about some random virus that they never heard of, mm-hmm. but them knowing for sure that they can't go back to work in the same way that they did. Yeah. That is what is more concerning. And until you meet that need, they're not going to trust and or listen to you. Exactly. And so by actually pursuing a strategy like that, not only were we able to meet the need, but we were also able to provide the information that we needed to provide around the pandemic now with a lot more trust. Yeah. But also knowing that, so what you just described, and that maybe this is the whole thing that COVID exposed for all of us, is this idea that there was a need for an immediate response to to stop something from happening. But there's also an indication of that these problems existed and what were, what do we need to do so that those kinds of things aren't concentrated in those areas in the future? What, is the, what does that data show you? You know, what Band-Aid did COVID rip off and see this is what the result of inequitable resource allocation is. And this is what we need to now, now that we've survived COVID, what do we need to do to make sure that those resources and those issues, those problems are addressed for a longer term solution in those neighborhoods? And that's huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A but. friend of mine described it as COVID showed us the fault lines of yeah. society yeah. Um, and where the cracks were at from the very beginning. Right. And so our question, our, our challenge is not just how we respond to the symptom, but ultimately, the what are we going to do about the, the root, root of cause, the problem? Yeah, the root right. of the problem. And, you know, I, I want to go back to some of the strategies that you said that were, were super successful. You know, what were some of those outputs? What did they look like in community mm-hmm. that kind of really helped solve some of those things? Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk? through just a couple of examples. Yeah, with the COVID example. Yeah. Yeah, so I I said one of them, which was this... um, uh, The pantry. Yeah, the food pantry. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Some of the other things that we did together is... um, so the table consisted not only of community and government, but also some other institutional stakeholders like hospitals. Mm -hmm. And um, so... Often the conversation uh, can be between community and government and the private sector is kind of off on the sidelines, not being kind of a part of anything. But here we were all sitting around the table. And so one is that our folks in the healthcare system were kind of being convicted to say, what more could we be doing? Yeah, Um, We're talking about one of the things that make you most vulnerable to COVID is underlying health conditions. Well, guess what? We know a whole lot of people with underlying health conditions because yeah. that's who we care for. Yeah. Um, now, typically, the role of a doctor is just to wait till you come to them yeah. with an ailment and then they support you. But what would it look like for your doctor to actually do some affirmative outreach to make sure you understand uh, the risk? So they took it upon themselves to say and, and kind of convicted by what
what they were hearing from community members is like, we should actually affirmatively call our patients and, you know, this is your doctor. Did you know that this virus is happening? I, you know, we know that you have an underlying, you need to take special care. And so what that, what that does in that relationship. And so, so, and they were able to reach in almost pretty Eat pretty immediately, yeah. you know, tens of thousands of Chicagoans by taking on that responsibility th themselves. Um, another example is, um, uh, I feel like I'm going through memory lane here, man. Um, <laughs> remember when testing was the big thing? Yeah, we were just trying to set up testing. Yeah, and it was uh, it was challenging because there weren't enough testing sites. And so one of the the, the um, issues is that, you know, there was some private testing that was being stood up, then government was slowly coming in, but we were we only had oh so many resources. And so our communities were like, we need to test in on every corner uh, immediately. And we're like, we can't do that. Yeah. Uh, we only have so many resources. And, you know, there were some missteps there, but one of the things that happened because we were in that relationship, we were all looking together, is that our healthcare partner said, okay, we can also test. We don't have the infrastructure, like we don't have the physical locations that you all have, but we have the uh, technical equipment for testing. Yeah, right. So to your point earlier, we literally expanded the, the pie of what was available by partnering their technical abilities with our infrastructure to create more testing sites. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. And we were able to do that because we were working together. And the community's role in that was to make sure that the people knew that they were in the right locations, that people could, that they were accessible to people, and that there was that connection. And so working together, it, you know, there's sort of countless of these examples. Yeah. But I think the, the, the lesson that I took from that was the power of convening each one of us as important experts in our own set of experiences to tackle this issue. And we treated each other like experts. Yeah. We all looked at the same data. We literally created dashboards together right. where we were all, and you know, this was good data, you know, straight from the Department of Public Health. And we were making that available and we were targeting in such a way that it, it, it set us all up to then bring the entire benefit of our expertise to the table to create solutions that I really think none of us would have imagined on our own. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's so important because outside of crisis situations, that can happen. That's what I was just about to say. And <laughs> this, that's why I was asking those questions. Yes. This can happen, It you know, in everyday life, you know? Right. It, it's so important. And that's been actually part of my work <laughs> post-COVID is to uh, try to replicate that lesson learned that was so powerful for me. That's not something I thought I was going to learn as a chief equity officer, right? I thought I was going to be doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and here I go, get you know, getting this master class. Um, and so the question for me was, was this just COVID? Was it just a crisis that allowed this or can this be replicated? And so in our work, we've actually tried to replicate this similar model in the issue of housing instability yeah. and community safety. That's fantastic. Um, and I think we're, you know, different dynamics for sure. Yeah. But the power of that kind of relationship is proving to still be true. Right. Because the community are experts of their own lived experiences. Right. And so engaging them and having them at the table to be a part of that process is super important, but it also helps build trust, right? right. And support that process. I think, thank you so much. I know we, we're getting close to the end and we have to wrap, but you know, I do just have one more question just because you were talking about the success of this convening um, and it was happening during a time and I want to just tie back in the disinformation piece that we were receiving a lot of disinformation yes. about black, whether black people could even get COVID. You know, I think we all remember those Whether days. Whether they should get we, vaccinated uh, but or like, all of everything. But just like at that point, before we even got to the vaccine, vaccines, that the vaccines weren't even on the market. We were talking about like black people can't get COVID. <laughs> and then the data started coming out. Yeah, right. So yeah. how were you able to... A black to, person was the first person. Was the first person who died. A black, a black woman. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like how were you able to um, combat that? And to even be able to start convening that, because that's the first hurdle, right? To be able to address the disinformation in order for people to be able to come to the table, build trust with government and start to be able to work on those strategies. I mean, I'll be honest. I think it was 
building relationships first gave us the comfort and the space to actually have the conversation about what was really the source of the disinformation. So, you know, um, without relationship, it's just like you hear this over here and, and you may be like, I can't believe they think that is that really true, but you're not actually having a conversation because at the root of that, there are some real questions that people are asking. And so when we got into relationship with one another, when we got to understand one another, when we were all able to look at the same sets of data and information, I think it gave people the safety and the space to ask questions um, and to trust that there were, there were no stupid questions. There were no silly questions that we were all interested, invested in a shared outcome that we were working toward. And we can help one another get the information that we need to drive to where we want to be. Yeah. And, and you know, I think really that's a, that's a danger of disinformation is yeah. that it actually separates us. Yeah. It, it, it locks us up into our different camps and it doesn't create spaces that we can actually push one another to get to the work that is actually going to get us to where we want to be because what we find is that a lot of us really do want very similar things, right? When you boil it down be it beyond all the isms and the barriers, people fundamentally want and share a lot of the same values, but all of these things create barriers that I argue don't serve any of us well. Right. It is a myth that you 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 are served well in all of this yeah. because if, if if we're existing in a community, um, then we have a shared sense of humanity here, and 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 there's a mutuality. And if one community is not well, then the whole is not well. Exactly. I think that that's the perfect perfect place I, to end. Thank you so much thank you. for joining us today and giving us somebody else to talk to yeah. and, and, and and to and to um, sort of share a vision about how data uh, can be used um, to the benefit of communi communities and also to talk about successes and talk about narratives about community that are positive, encouraging, um, and that we're, where we can build from. So thank you so much, Candace Moore, for being yeah. here with us. Thank we you for so, having me. We so appreciate you. That connection of bridging that gap between government and community is such an important one. And important. as we talked about, we know data can be used to fuel disinformation campaigns, but it can also be used to dispel them yes. as well and, and work toward positive and productive change. So with that, we're out. We out. Until next time. Peace. Hey y'all, it's Glennis. We appreciate you tuning in from wherever you are in the world. We hope that you learned something that you can use. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your tribe because there's no us without you. Bye-bye.